Hello, this is Richard Outram, and welcome to the Prepare for Growth podcast series, bite-sized wisdom for leadership and personal development. So thank you for taking time out to join me. I'm so grateful for this unique opportunity. Okay, and in this week's Prepare for Growth podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce Richard Shapiro, founder and president of the Center for Client Retention. He is a leading authority in the areas of brand loyalty and customer experience and retention, having spent over 28 years researching thousands of customers to compile the ingredients of customer loyalty and repeat business. During his 14 plus years with ADP, he advanced the vice president of customer satisfaction and client retention, where sales rose from $40 million to over $4 billion. Richard is also an author of two books, the Welcomer Edge, Unlocking the Secrets to Repeat Business, and in his second book, The Endangered Customer, Eight Steps to Guarantee Repeat Business, where he explains a proprietary systematic method to create and build stronger customer relationships. Richard serves on the Corporate Advisory Board of Community Life, Life is Precious program that supports social services for at-risk Latina teenagers who are contemplating suicide. And in this week's session, Richard's key wisdom bite is create an emotional bond from day one. And Richard, welcome on board. I'm so excited. We've had a, a few conversations on the phone. Um, you're an absolute gentleman, and I'm thrilled for this session. This is of critical importance to, if not all, most companies um, in corporate America and around the world. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome yes. on board. Richard, thank you so much uh, for inviting me here to speak. And yes, we've had some great conversations and, you know, it is all about creating and building relationships. So I think that's what we started and what we're continuing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, um, Richard. So the three segments, as, as you know, what have you learned? What would you change? What are you grateful for? And, and then we'll have a quick round. Okay, Richard. So if we can kick it off, um, a very uh, endearing story. You know, your father owned a retail store and you spent Saturdays helping and learning the business. So Richard, what were the key lessons that you learned from this experience? Yeah, thank you, Richard, uh, for that question. A lot of times people will ask me like, you know, where did you learn about customer experience or customer retention or building relationships? So it started, I was very fortunate at a very early age. Uh, when my dad was uh, had a retail store, I was about 10 or 11 years old. And every Saturday, as you said, pretty much I worked at my dad's store. I was the cashier and it was a small store. So the beauty of that is that I could view every interaction that my dad made with customers. And the three things that I learned uh, that I like to share are number one, my father taught me that all customers are people first, customers second. Let me repeat that. My father taught me that all customers are people first, uh, customers second. Second thing he taught me was that it was important to welcome everybody into the store, just like he'd welcome them into your home. And to my dad, the store was just an extension of the home, you know, another place to make people feel welcome. And the third thing I learned was the importance of and how to create an emotional bond with each customer from day one. And I feel very lucky that I am carrying out my dad's legacy I, I founded the Center for Client Retention. I wrote two books, as you mentioned. I have two customer experience meetup groups. I'm involved with nonprofits and I'm mentoring students uh, as many as I, I can have time for. So 
even though my father passed away when I was only 26, I know he'd be very happy that I'm carrying out his legacy. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story there, Richard. And, and, and what I loved, you kind of mentioned to me the first time uh, we'd, we'd spoken and we met was, you know, following this method of relationship building, it will cause customers to enter as strangers and leave as friends. How beautiful is that? It is. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I think I omitted uh, to say is that one of my most fulfilling things is for the last four years, I did give it up recently because we moved, but I taught at the Fashion Institute of Technology uh, in New York. And uh, at the end of each semester, I always ask the students, you know, what is the one thing that you remember more than any other? And every class, they say the story how you and your wife walked into an antique store and you looked up and there you saw this sign, you know, enter as strangers, leave as friends. And you told us that's what business and life is all about, that people come into your life as strangers. And it's not going to happen all the time. But ultimately, if they leave as friends, that's a really nice thing that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely, Richard. So let's take it up a notch in terms of the corporate world. And so you spent many years um, at ADP and obviously very, very impressive number in terms of driving those sales. So my question to you, Richard, is what did you learn at ADP in creating their account manager program? Sure, that's an excellent question. Well, at ADP, I did start when I was about 21 or 22. It was kind of a startup. As you mentioned, the revenues were 40 million. Yep. When I left, they were uh, $4 billion and I had a buried, really great career there. And uh, what people don't often know is that ADP has the most su successful financial record of any company, and that's over 165 consecutive quarters of double-digit earning growth. No other company had that growth. The only two companies that came close were Walmart and McDonald's. Uh, so it always had a retention focus. And in my last job, I was asked to uh, create the account manager program. And we did have account executives, not account managers, but they were similar roles going out to visiting customers. But now they had a new role, not only to retain the customers and service the customers, but also cross sell the customers as well. So when I started going out with uh, account managers and I set up visits all over the country, I right away found that, that my people or account managers were going out to visit clients or accounts uh, but most of them were not visiting the decision maker. They were only seeing the user. So while it is important to see the user, the decision maker still makes the decision. The second thing I found out is that even if they were uh, seeing the decision maker, they didn't know what questions or what kind of conversation to have. So it was more like stopping into their office or her office and saying, oh, I'm your account manager. How is everything going? And they'll ask, oh, did you see Mary Jane yet? And you say yes. And that was the end of the conversation. And even if they had a good conversation, no one was doing anything with those insights. So I realized that the account managers had to be refocused to not only make appointments with decision makers, but have a reason and a tool uh, when they got in front of the decision maker. And that was my first uh, kind of revelation that they need a list of questions. They need like a whole series of open-ended questions to establish that dialogue. And maybe we established or created 50 questions and they would pick out 15 or 10 when they went to see a client once, once a quarter or once a year. And those questions were great because they not only solicited fabulous information, 
the process of asking the decision maker those questions help build a closer relationship, post personal and business. So at the end of the year, it was just before I left ADP, the retention I think had gone up from like 84 to 92% and incremental sales tripled. So even today, I mean, that's the process I use with law firms or accounting firms or any kind of firm that has an account manager. Almost any of those uh, people can make, be made more effective. And what I found in general is that most customers don't know about all the services that you know, the company offers. So by doing this, it does help inform them that and also cross sell, even though that's not necessarily the main intention of it. And that's great feedback, Richard. And what I would say just from my personal experience, uh, uh, somewhat being on the other end of the sales side, you know, account manager will, will come to me over my experience, having been in public accounting and other CFO type roles to try to sell to me. Um, and, and so the point about not just getting to the, the decision maker, what I found um, there was some deficiency in people asking the right type of questions or the open-ended questions to really establish that relationship and understand truly where my pain points were in the business. What advice would you give for budding account managers out there about you know, generating that, that kind of sense or that experience to be able to ask the right open-ended questions? I, I think um, that it's good in, in your next staff meeting that you have with your peers or uh, your bosses uh, no, not necessarily think of the questions, but think of what information you know would help you service that client better or just develop a relationship. And I always tell people because I found this the, tr the true customers, even prospects, sometimes will answer almost any question that you ask. They'll tell you how you can get more business, what percentage of the business that you have, etc. But you have to do it in a way that you ask. You know, you kind of lead up to it. You have to ask enough questions where they develop that trust. And then they'll tell you almost anything. So uh, even a question like, how likely are you to you know, renew on a scale of one to 10 or something after you ask a whole bunch of questions? You know, if they say nine or 10, you're in pretty good shape, but probably if they say anything less than a nine, the account might be vulnerable. You, know? you probably won't, they probably won't even be in the door if it's a one or two, but you know, if, 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 a, if a person doesn't give you a nine or 10 on renewing, then there's an issue there. Right. And so to the audience, this is, this is an unscripted session here. And so, Richard, what I would put out to you at some point is um, we're both authors. You've written two great books. I've written one particularly on selling to the CFO. And so at some point we'll collaborate maybe on another podcast and talk about, you know, how do you do that more effectively? You know, how, how do people do that, particularly service providers? So that's... Um, that's just a, a little sidebar there. So let's get into the nuts and bolts, R R Richard, on as regards your, your latest book, The Endangered Customer. Um, one of the points you made there was your customer is the one thing you need to keep, all right? And you lay out eight steps to guarantee repeat business. Can you briefly take us through that journey, please, Richard, and just highlight some key areas that you'd like the audience to, to hear and learn? Sure. Uh so the eight steps, uh, which I'm going to outline in a minute, the reason why they're so valuable is that the eight steps are uh, based on human emotions. And in creating the eight steps, I really mirrored it after Eric Erickson, who was a famous psychotherapist, uh, a process of human development. He, he developed a process of human development. 
And it's really segmented into three components of hope, trust, and intimacy. And nobody goes into a relationship, whether it's personal or business, hope, unless they're hoping something can happen. And then they hope that this person, that they trust the person and has the competency to deliver that hope. And then the last part is really keeping in touch with them after that sale is made or relationship is built to show that intimacy. So the eight steps mirror those. They just expand it and each step has a specific components and it's make me feel welcome, give me your full attention, answer more than my question, know your stuff, don't tell me no, which is the only negative, invite me to return, show me I matter and surprise me in all in good ways. So what's great about it is those eight steps work terrifically or well for, and they're well suited for uh, electronic commerce, face-to-face uh, -face interactions or phone interactions, or even dealing with your children or grandchildren or friends or relatives. So uh, matter of fact, when I first uh, issued the, uh, or was right, the book was just about ready to come out. And one of my clients said, oh, it'd be good to have some kind of bookmark, uh, which I did put in the book. And I went out to dinner with friends and uh, the friend saw the bookmark and he said in front of his wife, you know what? This is such a great recipe for a terrific marriage. If I can always give my wife uh, my full attention and surprise her in good ways and show her that I matter, I'm gonna have a great marriage. And the next uh, meal that we had, he told me that he actually put that bookmark next to his stove because he's the cook so that he'll never forget those eight steps. I love these, Richard. I, I, I love these. These are fabulous. And um, I'm holding up the bookmark, bookmark here. And this is just ties all the way back to your key wisdom by it, which is create an emotional bond from day one. And I love it. I mean, as, as Richard laid out, uh, you know, hope, control, connect, trust, frustration, feel wanted, caring, and feel special. Richard, are all of these created equally? No. Um, okay. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, first impressions are important. So if you don't make somebody feel welcome, you're probably not going to get to the rest of the steps. And the second thing, uh, it doesn't have to be step number five, but as I said, the only step that's negative is don't say no. Yeah. And when you say when you say no, it takes all kinds of forms like we can't, we won't, it's not our policy, uh, not getting back to somebody. No is a two letter word, but actually the customer here is a seven letter word and that seven letter word is goodbye. I was just talking to someone um, just before this uh, podcast and he asked why I was no longer involved with an association that I'd been a member 20 years. And I said, well, because uh, when I went to uh, uh, submit an abstract to do a talk, they told me that members are not allowed to do a talk. They only pay non-members. I said, well, that doesn't make sense. But to me, that was no. And then I just left the organization after 20 years. So please, no matter what, never say no. Uh, I was asked, uh, I spoke once at a conference in Las Vegas, the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Association. And at the end of my talk, and everybody was, uh, by the way, smoking cigars, 800 people. Somebody said, well, what if you absolutely positively have to say no? I said, well, you know what? If you have to say no, never say no on the spot. Always say, let me check. Let me get back to you, et cetera. Don't say no on the spot, even if it is eventually a no. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. All right. So we, we're going to keep drilling in because we're going to, we're going to bring your wisdom bites to life now. And so um, 
customer service and customer experience, the kind of terms used inter interchangeably. All right. What's the difference between the two, Richard? Uh, well, the best way, uh, best analogy, I think, is, uh, you know, do you want the relationship to be a date or do you want it to be a romance? Okay. And customer experience is an ongoing process, while customer service to me is a single transaction. Matter of fact, often when I'm doing a presentation and explaining customer experience, I kind of have a, a play and pause button uh, on the screen. And every time somebody has an interaction with your company, the customer experience has been paused. And the way you reboot that customer experience is by inviting the customer to return, which is step number six, by telling them, I wanna see you again. I wanna, uh, uh, I wanna hear from you again. I did a, a keynote and also a, a program for a university system. And uh, one of the campuses happens to be in in Tampa and that campus leader, she got it right away. And she instructed her people, listen, when you see a student in the library, in the cafeteria, I want you to number one, make sure they know that this is their second home. And number two, I want you to say to them, am I gonna see you tomorrow? Or when are you gonna come back? This is the way you turn a customer service interaction into a customer experience. I love the date and the romance analogy, Richard. And so let's share some stats here because I was looking this stuff up, okay? And it was saying, essentially from the Harvard Business Review, one of the articles here, um, that a good customer experience makes a person five times more likely to recommend the company products. And 76% of executives say improving customer service is a, is a critical priority for the company. All right, so on that, basis, the customer experience being the romance. How important is the employee experience as part of that overall customer experience equation? Another great question. Well, you can't deliver good customer experience if you have not only unhappy uh, employees, uh, but in addition, all new employees. I mean, too many companies, you know, cut their most experienced people and that doesn't make sense. So frankly, in a lot of cases, service and products are getting so complicated that it takes a while to learn the product. But if you know the product, then it's easier to learn some of these additional skills. But if you're fumbling and have to look at CRM systems or uh, to find out what the answer to the product is instead of knowing it because you're, you're new, uh, then you're not gonna probably be able to converse with, with, with the customer. So, um, you know, we did, a, we did several contact center studies where we interviewed uh, employees and we asked, what is the one thing that you hate more than anything else? Uh, and they said, well, when, the, when our supervisors say that uh, to tell the customer that we never heard of that problem before, when they know that problem exists all the time. So the associates really want to deliver honest you know, customer experience and sometimes their hands are tied, but yes, absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, I created these four typologies that were in my first book, welcomers, uh, robots, indifference and hostiles and welcomers are at the top of the grid. And sometimes people will say, well, can a welcomer become a hostile? And I say, well, you know what? A welcomer won't become a hostile, but if a welcomer has a terrible boss who's hostile, they certainly can become a robot or indifferent. So having a good boss is so important. Having that role model is so important. 
Awesome, awesome. And and again, just a stats, uh, just to reiterate your point about the importance of customer experience. Um, some of the stats that I can share is that, you know, the difference between top and bottom quartiles is that, you know, just good employee experience will lead to 10% better customer ratings, 22% improvement in profitability, and 20, 21% in productivity. So so there you go. It's It's an integral part of that whole customer experience ecosystem is the way I'd say it, you know? So continue on customer experience, Richard. What trends do you see in increasing customer experience? Let's talk about the new world now. Well, I don't know if it's a trend, I'll tell them what I'd like to see. Yes. Uh, and hopefully if I, on my voice box or soapbox enough, um, but you know, we are in an electronic world now and, and um, people who have e-commerce sites don't understand that an e-commerce site should be, you know, the company's home and it should be, it should be engaging and you should want to engage or entice the customer before you have them enter your site or your home. And uh, I just did a presentation recently where I showed several examples. Like if you go on to the, which is a wonderful association, the American Heart Association, as soon as you click on their site, there's just a big sign that says donate, all right? It doesn't say call for information or let us tell, tell you what we're doing. So I still feel that the strongest bond is between two people. And I would like to see the trend and it certainly could be replicated even in an e-commerce world where it's a one-to-one -one relationship or a one-to-team. And one of the examples I give is T-Mobile and I'm not a customer, so I don't know exactly how it works, but I heard them speak a number of years ago or not that long ago where they created teams and the teams have a connection. So if, the way I understand it, if you're a T-Mobile new account and you're living in New Jersey, you'll have a Jersey team that's, uh, that's, your, that's your team. That's kind of the one-on-one. -on -one. And they all have a connection to New Jersey. Maybe they were born in New Jersey or went to school in New Jersey. So I'm hoping that the trend is that companies realize that they have to set up this one-to-one -one relationship and it is possible to scale it, you know, based on, on the business. So that's what I hope. Uh, I, I'll just give you one more example because it's a retailer that I think is struggling so much, Macy's. You go on their website. Now Macy's is a company from the 1800s. This, it has history to it. It was in, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know it's, it's a legendary company. Yet if you go on that website, there's nothing about the history of Macy's. It's the same website as a JCPenney or a Target or any, any other you know, kind of retailer. So those are the things that I, I would like people to understand. Put a history and put, put a feeling in it. Make the website feel like a, someone's home. That's what I would like. Understood, no, awesome, awesome. And, and you make a, a really good PowerPoint in your second book, uh, which is Richard, that we have moved from the information age to the quote unquote attention age. All right, and so, you know, a lot of these, a lot of your wisdom bites and your eight steps to guarantee repeat business is a real, a real around, obviously, you know, creating that, that emotional bond. But as we increase machine learning and AI into our customer engagement, what's gonna happen to assessing the emotional state of our customers? Well, that's another good question. I, I am a believer 
you know, artificial intelligence and actually I've facilitated a lot of workshops involving customer experience. Uh, I think artificial intelligence and conversational uh, automation is, is great, but I always want there to be, you know, an off ramp. When the customer, before the customer gets frustrated, if they realize that they really do have to talk to a human, I want the system to allow them that off ramp to talk you know, to a human. And I think, um, and, and the reason why I do believe in conversational AI, uh, especially if it's, if it's almost 99% uh, perfected, which I, I think it can be within certain confines and in certain industries, is that like during the pandemic or during snowstorm or things like that, if you're fact, I mean, if you don't, I mean, I was shocked that Chase Manhattan Bank, which is one of the most profitable banks uh, in the world, you know, that when the pandemic hit, you could not reach a representative for anything over the weekend. So I, I think that was a big mistake. That's not walking the talk. And uh, so even if they had a really great, um, a uh, conversational AI system, I think that would at least suffice, you know, somewhat. So I am a believer in automation, but I always want there to be that fork in the road where they can take the human interaction at some point. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, all right. So getting back to the, the dating game, we've come off the romance now, which is the customer experience. Now we go to the dating game with one question uh, on customer service. Are there any parts of customer service, Richard, that should never be automated. I was thinking about that concept because it came up uh, about a month ago with a client of mine. And um, when you think about it, you know, the first time that somebody, when somebody's a new customer and they're calling for the first time, whether it's to activate, let's say their credit card wouldn't it really be great if they could talk to a person and really have that person welcome them? So I'm going to say as a general answer to that, if they're going to not automate anything, let it not be that first, let, let, let it be that they have a human interaction on that first interaction with the company. I, I think that's just so important. And by the way, so many times when you go on a website, what is the first email that you get back? You know, when you set up your password, do not reply to this email. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think anybody, any customer should ever get an email that says don't reply. And if it has to be don't reply, at least have a telephone number where somebody could call in the hours. These things just don't make sense to me. So the first impression is really important. I like to humanize that first impression. Awesome. Great. All right. Great answer on that one. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about demographics now. And so you've done a lot of research about millennial customers. What have you seen in your research? What would you want to share with the audience? Actually, I don't know if I have done a lot of research with millennials because every time I ask a millennial, they always have a different answer. <laughs> um, I will say this. I will say this before the pandemic, uh, when everybody was buying, you know, online, especially millennials, uh, I looked down towards the floor of my class and everybody was wearing sneakers. And I asked where everybody bought those sneakers, you know, was it in a store online? And everyone in every class always said they bought the sneakers in a store. 
So I think it depends on the item. Uh, I asked my son this morning, who's a, a, a millennial, and he said he really feels millennials certainly are into sustainability. And I know Patagonia is one of those, if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, you know, they, they, they aren't looking for, for waste. However, I will tell you that one of the companies that everybody loves, Apple, they, they really do have probably an issue with sustainability. Every time you get a new Apple phone, it's a new wire, it's new this and new that, but everybody loves Apple, but sustainability, I don't think is one of their strong points. Um, and then other, as I tell me, I asked another one the other day, and they said uh, they would rather save money so that they can buy another item rather than just possibly getting better customer service for an item that they want anyway. So I, I don't know, I, I'll tell you, I, I have looked at research and I don't co feel comfortable but any of the research, matter of fact, I did show it to my class the last time and they said it wasn't true. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm just gonna tell you anecdotally, I'm, I'm not gonna quote any research. I don't try, we, have, we do research, not necessarily that kind of research, but a lot of research uh, is really suspect. Fair enough, fair enough. And thank you for your honesty on that one, Richard. So um, just to wrap this segment uh, you know, up in terms of what have you learned, um, I was looking at what I was reading one of your blogs and it was a great statement which said loyalty is generally connected to another person, not to places, stores, or even to brands. Richard, please, please expand that statement. That's a very powerful statement. No, absolutely. And it, and it ties in a little bit to the reason why I was saying about the, the websites. But, you know, for years, uh, we now live in Florida. We did live in New York. And for years, I lived in New Jersey. And, and I, whenever I needed something uh, menswear wise, I always went to Ruth at Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's is known for good customer service. And Ruth would call me up when she got something in. I mean, I didn't even ask her to call me, but she always was you know, trying to service me and sell me. And all of a sudden, one day Ruth calls me up and she says, Richard, I, I have some disappointing news. She said, it's good for me, but I am moving from, uh, ironically, from where we live now, from, from New Jersey to Boca Raton and, uh, I'm sure the next time you come into the store, you know, you're gonna find someone you know, that you can work with. And I said, thank you very much, Ruth, for everything that you've done. And um, the next time I went to Nordstrom's and everybody knows Nordstrom's has wonderful service. I walked in, but my Ruth wasn't there and I couldn't find anybody else. And that was the last time that I ever went to Nordstrom's. So some people say, well, how could that have been changed? The way it could have been changed, I call that the handoff, perhaps and I'm not blaming Ruth, but if Ruth had said, let's rewind the clock, Richard, I'm leaving, but I found the perfect person for you. Come in, let's have some coffee. I'll introduce you to John. I might still be buying from Nordstrom's. So the bond, and that's what happens in almost any business. They'll tell you it's Mary at the coffee shop or John at Starbucks. That's who the people go back to see. Interesting. No, that's great, Richard. Thank you for that. Okay, the next segment. Richard, what would you change in any area of life or business? For me personally or, uh, or, or just in, in general? Could be in general. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, I, um, I think that, I think respect is really something that's important. And I, I think that you know, that it's, it's important to be respectful in any kind of, uh, you know, relationship. And it so happens, uh, I'm very patient. 
and I'm flexible and I don't mind people, you know, making mistakes, but if they're not respectful to me or anybody else, I get really annoyed. That's really one of my hot buttons. So, uh, Matter of fact, today, I, you know, I had a workshop for, uh, you know, new biotech and company that's going to have a, an Hispanic a market. Uh, most of their customers are going to be Hispanic. And I know in the Hispanic community how important respect is and how important it is to call someone Mr. Shapiro or Mrs. Shapiro or Ms. Jones or Mr. P- Mr. Perez. You know, showing that respect is so important. So I think if people realize that it's important to be respectful. And by the way, I think young people are terrific and I have had so many wonderful encounters with young people at all kinds of places that have built tremendous relationships. So I'm very hopeful for the younger generation. I think they're really doing a great job. Have you seen, and I love that point, Richard, thank you for that on the, on the respect point. Um, have you seen diminished respect either, you know, in your daily life or whether it's, you know, nationally or worldwide? I mean, do you see a kind of diminished respect level at all or? Or uh, probably a little bit. Um, and, and listen, just like if we're talking about customer loyalty, you know, not showing respect is just like not saying it is like saying no as well. That people don't want to do business with you. I, I, I am surprised at businesses, and I would say this might fall to the change category. I mean, too many owners of businesses really don't pay attention, you know, to, you know, how their employees are treating uh, their customers. And sometimes it's the owner of the business itself that, that is, is disrespectful to their employees. I remember in my book, uh, when I was writing it, there was someone at the local grocery market. She was amazing. Uh, Some, she asked somebody, which a lot of cashiers will do, like, did you find, you know, everything they were looking for? And this gentleman said, well, no. Anyway, she literally took his hand. This was before the pandemic. Went to the aisle, showed him, and came back. And I tried to interview her boss for the book, and he was just so dismissive of her. You know, like she wasn't worth anything. And those things make me very upset. Understood. Understood. What are you grateful for, Richard, in area of life, not just business? I'm grateful of. I'm grateful I looked at my life recently and I said, you know, except for one or two things, I really felt that I hadn't made any, you know, the wrong decisions. Uh, I mean, that things have worked out and even when they didn't work out, it was still, you know, to my benefit. Uh, You know, I had a wife who passed away that was absolutely terrific. Uh, But four years later, you know, I met my new wife who's equally as terrific. And together we have five grown children and eight grandchildren. And, you know, I'm just so happy. And, um, you know, it's nice to have a, even a larger extended family. So to me, everybody should be in an extended family in life. That's what I like to see. How beautiful is that, Richard? How beautiful is that? Okay, Richard, the quick round, Um, you know, in your book, you have the very last section, which really talks about um, customer survey type questions. So, what makes for a good customer survey? Well, that's a hot button for me because I most people think uh, surveys are dirty words. So the reason why surveys are dirty words are because people don't know how to implement them and too many surveys are transactional. It doesn't make sense. You know, if you take 20 legs on a uh, trips on United Airlines that you get 40 or 20 surveys. And then if you use the Wi-Fi, you get another 20 or 40. That is not the way a survey should be constructed. 
a survey really should give you great information, both satisfaction and business-wise. And uh, most people don't understand that a survey doesn't just have to be satisfaction. I recently encountered a, a, an accounting firm and they told me they just did a survey. They did a survey with three questions and they hadn't done a survey in 20 years. Well, that doesn't make sense. They could have had those same customers, which were quite a few, it was 15% response, but it was a thousand people. They could have gotten valuable insights for strategic planning and everything else. So surveys are uh, underutilized and overutilized at the same time. Got it, Richard. And would you have uh, any, you know, one or two or maybe three select power questions that, that you believe should be in most customer surveys? Are there any, any key questions that you can think Well, of? I always like to start off with the positive, like why you selected our firm in the pl first place. You're always going to get good response, you know, what's working well. Uh, but two comparison questions that I love, which I think are so important, are, uh, you know, how do we compare against our competition or it doesn't even have to be a direct competition? Are we comparable, not as good or better? And then find out certainly not if it's comparable, but if it's good or better, why? I also love the whole process of asking over time. In other words, has our service gotten better, uh, worse, or stayed the same over the last three years? Because maybe you still are a nine, but used to be a 10. And I think one of the last questions, which is really tied into my whole concept of hope, is when you go into a new client or an existing client saying, you know, what were you hoping to get out of this relationship? And are we fulfilling that hope? I like to use hope as part of those power questions. Awesome. Awesome. No, thank you for that. And just continue on that theme in today's viral world, how can companies keep customer complaints from spreading like wildfire? We've had some, you know, of course, there's the airline industry in the past, which, you know, haven't been, uh, haven't been uh, too well, too well kept in terms of some of this, uh, you know, social media activity, negative, negative press, I would say. But, but how can companies keep those complaints from, from spreading like wildfire? Uh, well, first of all, uh, in the first place, they should have uh, flexible policies and, and yeah. friendly policies and not be saying no all the time. So the people have to be trained. But once in a while, you know, something a customer is not going to be happy and then they do post it on social media. You do need the technology to uncover those right away. And some companies do some. I, I have posted some things on Twitter when I couldn't get through to other departments. And, um, and almost instantly, you know, they try to engage you and say, please call this number. So that's important, but why do I have to do that? I really, I really shouldn't have to call the VP. I might look up the VP on LinkedIn for UPS and, and try to find my box or, or uh, when Amazon said that they lost a hundred of my books, you know, I shouldn't have to try to, reach a VP at Amazon to find my books, which they did find, but they were destroyed. So I, I think that uh, you need to have as close to 24 or seven, you know, hour service as possible. And, uh, you know, if you're not open, be able to leave a message and or send an email and have somebody actually respond. Most companies actually don't even do a good job of responding to emails when you fill out that contact us page. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. And so where do companies most fail when it comes to customer retention, Richard, in your experience? It's, it's, it's the relationship part. You know, it's, take, it's, it's, uh, it's showing them that they matter. Uh, it's, it's building that relationship. If you have a cl close contact at a, at a client, there's a really good shot you're gonna keep that client 
forever, but that brings a really good point. I don't care how long you've had a customer, you know, especially a business customer, if that contact either got promoted or was laid off, or if within your company, you have a new contact, you basically have a brand new relationship and you have to start from ground one. So that's one of the biggest mistakes that companies make. They just treat the customer like they've had them for 20 years, but no, you have a brand new customer and you have to start from scratch. So that's when I definitely go in and find out and ask those really great 10 to 15 questions to try to create that relationship and that bond. Got it, got it. Okay, and COVID in the environment we're currently in, how will COVID change customer retention strategies in the future, do you think? I do believe, because I was a, I, I was now a believer that it is definitely going to be a hybrid world. And, and I think that the virtual communication is great. I, I was always uh, meeting people for lunch and not so much dinner, but coffee, especially in New York, was so easy to make a lot of visits. And that was great. And that was important. However, I did learn that the relationship on a Zoom can be almost just as effective. I've built up so many wonderful relationships since March. I mean, it's like, I know these people and it wouldn't make a difference, I think at this point, if I met them. So I think that whether it's account management or customer service, um, people are used to this virtual world and you should try to incorporate this virtual world as much as you possible to continue the relationship and make those relationships even more efficient. And, and on that theme, uh, Richard, which on that, which companies uh, do you think will win in the future post-COVID? Those companies that understand the value of experience people and treat their people well. So I, I don't know what the specific company, but you know, if you hire the right person and you take care of them and you train them and then you treat them with respect, uh, the world is a lot more complicated, as far, especially in the technology area. Some of these technology companies, it takes such a long time to learn the product. And then as soon as their earnings are off a little percent, you know, they get rid of half their people. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So I think you have to really think long-term and not short-term. Uh, it's not very easy to, to replace someone who has good knowledge, good experience, and good customer relationship skills. Right. You know, Richard, it, it, it raises a great point and uh, we'll, we'll reserve this for a future podcast, but I just want your, your quick insight on this one, because this comes back to, you know, earlier this year, in the World Economic Forum, the question of what's the purpose of the company? Is it value creation for shareholders or is it for stakeholders? And there was a big question. Stakeholders includes customers, employees, and a list of other, uh, you know, um, institutions that will impact the company or the company will impact them. So it was about the universal purpose of the company in the fourth industrial revolution. So I think what you're saying, and that was a great point you just made about, you know, the companies that will win it's a much broader SWOT and that SWOT of key stakeholders has to include purposeful, um, you know, service to customers as well as employees to say to the very least, there's much more than that, but that's what you're, you're basically imparting. Is that Absolutely. Right? And, you know, I mean, there was a big article you mentioned Harvard Business Review. They did, you know, big, did, did a big study, you know, before the COVID on, uh, retailing and how you know most people, most retailers felt that the you know the sales associates were expendable, and they proved that no, the sales associates have a great ROI, and it just it's being very pound penny wise, pound foolish. So absolutely, I agree with you. Absolutely, switching gears a bit. Tell us more about Life Is Precious program and your passion to make a difference. 
Sure. Uh, so about 12 years ago, when we uh, added an Hispanic division and to the Vista to our, our company services, uh, a friend of mine who was a Hispanic consultant said, uh, if you want to market or sell to the Hispanic community, you have to get to work with them and help them. So that's where she introduced me to Communal Life, Life is Precious organization. And unfortunately, in the New York area, Latinas have the highest propensity to commit suicide. So it was just a wonderful program. I was the corporate chair of the annual breakfast, uh, fundraising breakfast for the last five years. And, you know, the girls, you know, they come a lot, uh, many of them come from single family homes and poor homes and they're immigrants. And uh, so this teaches, um, you know, this poetry and music, it makes them feel more valued. And it really is a very cost efficient program. So with the dollars that are donated, um, you can really have a high impact and save, you know, somebody's life. So it's a wonderful program. And I was so happy that I was introduced and could help over the years. And God bless you, Richard. That's, that's a beautiful program, no doubt. Okay, Richard, two, two remaining parts here. Your parting wisdom bite that you want to share with businesses to improve customer experience and retention. What would be your parting wisdom bite? I, I talked about it, you know, a few times, but this invite to return really is the link to customer retention. Uh, just like I said uh, at this Hispanic university or this university system, telling someone that you want to see them or you expect to see them, that's the link. That's the missing link. That was my lead behind. So after you develop that hope and you deliver the trust, it's showing that intimacy that you really you know, care about them as a person. And that's what you have to do. If you tell someone that you, if you tell someone that you don't want to see them, again, they think that you don't want to, or I think I said that right. If, if you tell somebody you don't want to see them, they think that you don't want to, I, I think I'm saying that right. But um, so it's important to tell them that you do want to see them, then they know that you want to see them and, and continue the relationship. That's awesome. That's awesome, Richard. And if you do me one last favor, because I'm holding up the bookmark here, uh, for the book, The Endangered Customer. And if you'll do me a big favor, because these are just fabulous eight steps to guarantee repeat business. If you don't mind for me and for the audience, Richard, because I think these are very powerful. If you don't mind going over the eight steps again and the emotional attachment for each of those, uh, that would be wonderful. Sure. So the first one is make me feel welcome, which is tied into hope. Give me your full attention, which is uh, control and uh, people won't say they're out of control, but when you listen to them, that puts them in control. Answer more than my question, which is about connecting. Uh, know your stuff is about trust. Don't tell me no is about frustration. Inviting me to return, as I mentioned recently, is about feeling wanted. Showing uh, me that I matter is about caring and surprising me in good ways, especially for your really special customers, does make them feel special. So those are the eight steps and the emotional components of those eight steps. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Love you very much. This is, this is awesome, Richard. I'm sure there's some great wisdom bites that, uh, you know, uh, the listening audience can, can take out and, and actually, you know, start to practice. But again, thank you. That's been awesome. Really, My pleasure, Richard. I'd be happy to do it again at any time. Oh, thank you very that's much. The, that's the invite to return. <laughs> Take care and stay safe to you and your family. All the very best to you. I hope that you found today's session valuable. If so, please follow me on Instagram at outram.richard and post your comments. Thank you again. Until the next podcast.